I ended up getting tattooed from Hardy, and that was uh, that was a game changer. Ed decided he wanted to open a shop in the Mission District. He needed someone to help him build that shop and run that shop, so he offered to teach me to tattoo. It's important that we understand the shoulders that we're standing on. Hello, Chuck. Well, hello. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for making the time. Sure. Thanks so, to my wife for helping me get this set up. <laughs> Brilliant. Eh? Thank you for me. Yeah. And how are you guys? We're reopened now and um, business is doing good. We have, uh, I retired from tattooing uh, after 40 years and we have one tattooer and um, he seems to be staying as busy as he wants to be. And is that where you're from originally? Yeah, I was born and raised about 40 minutes from here, a little town called Elkin. It was a cotton mill town. Okay. Let me ask you, Chuck, uh, can you remember the first tattoo you ever seen? Uh, yeah, my, uh, my dad, my uncles, all were tattooed while in the service. Korean War, Second World War, yeah. So. Yeah, and you've been in the Navy all of that, yeah? Yes, I got my first tattoo in the Navy. Um, okay. I, the little town I was born and raised in, there was no tattooing. Um, as far as I know, there wasn't even anybody tattooing out of their house. So um, by the time I was about eight, I knew I wanted tattoos, but it was another decade before I actually got into a tattoo shop. So that's very young. I got I got four the first day I got tattooed. <laughs> four at once. Four four in one day. Yeah. <laughs> what did you get? Well, I got classic Navy stuff, anchors, eagles, nice, um, nice. cobra snake. And, you know. yeah. and where was that? That was in San Diego. Okay. In 1965. I went to boot camp. I joined the Navy and um, they took me to California to boot camp in San Diego. And then uh, 12 weeks later, they gave us uh, 12 hours of liberty and $200 and turned us loose in San Diego. So I got uh, four tattoos and had a couple of good meals and went to a burlesque show and um, made a day of it, so. That's awesome, it's like <laughs> listening to a, a book or a movie or something. <laughs> That's awesome. When did you go from there? I guess that the thing is when you open the door, then it's like, here we go. Yeah, box, it, right? it just keeps going then. Well, for Navy wise, I've got orders from boot camp. I went to South Texas for two years on a little air base there. And uh, I continued to get tattooed there. I would hitchhike down to Corpus Christi, which was the closest town of any size. And I would get tattooed there. And then after uh, shore duty, two years of shore duty, I actually got orders to go to sea. And uh, I went on an aircraft carrier that was uh, operating in Vietnam. Wow. Off the coast of Vietnam. Wow. So I uh, got two year got two years of shore duty and two years at sea. So I got to see kind of both sides of the navy. I like the sea duty better. Yeah. yeah, I guess it's a different a different. You make a different connection with the people and the experience and everything. Yeah. Yeah. What, what was happening too? It was the the midst of the Vietnam War, and all the on the shore duty they were mostly being operated by civilians. The bases were, 
And so it wasn't, it was almost a kind of just kind of like a job. You just go and do your job and, and then you go back to your barracks. Uh, whereas in um, aboard ship, it was like the real Navy. Yeah. yeah. Was the real what Navy. is the nicest memory you can think of of that time at sea? Well, you know, there was, there was a lot. Um, I mean, obviously the ports, I mean, you would go to sea for 45 to 60 days and then we would go into somewhere like uh, Hong Kong or uh, the Philippines or something like that. Those were always great, those, those liberties. Yeah, and I guess you haven't been in any of these places before. It was like a complete first time. Yeah? No, I was <laughs> from the mountains of North Carolina. So wow. <laughs> Hong Kong was wonderful. <laughs> it must have been such a, like, a, I don't know, man, overwhelming. Like so much. Yeah, so yeah you, just, you just kind of soak it up. You know, it's, yeah. uh, it's great. Did you guys get tattooed in all these trips? Yes. Oh, yeah. I got tattooed in Hong Kong by Pinky. Pinky Young. Wow. Yeah. And fortunately, I got to meet him later. You know, he came to America after all those years in Hong Kong, and he ended up tattooing in Alameda, California, which is just across the bay from San Francisco. And yeah. so I actually got to meet him again there. Uh, I didn't get any more tattoos from him, but I got to spend a lot of time around him. And when I had my shop in Berkeley, he would come and visit and it was great. And how was the scene in, in that time? That How did you perceive it? Like, Yeah, it was a different time. You know, the in San Diego, where I first got tattooed, Everybody was in uniform. You couldn't wear civilian clothes in the Navy at that time. You had to wear your uniform. And so the shops were just lined up with sailors. Uh, literally, uh, you would stand in line waiting for your turn. The shops would be full of tattooers. And all the, the tattooers, there was no young people tattooing. They were all people that were holdovers from the Korean War and the Vietnam War or the uh, Second World War. So they were all older men that were tattooing. You would line up and you would just pick a design off the wall, of course. Um, they weren't doing anything custom. It was, you know, get them in and get them out. And then when, once I got overseas, uh, most of the tattoo shops overseas were actually off limits because they, they weren't working very clean. So okay. you had to be kind of clandestine in the to get into the tattoo shops and get out, get the tattoo and then get out of the shop without getting caught by shore patrol. Um, because if you got sh caught by shore patrol, then you were explaining all of this to the captain, yeah. <laughs> which was not much fun. Um, <laughs> so the, the shops, of course, they knew they were off limits. So they would go to extreme measures to assure your safety that you didn't get caught. I remember Pinky's shop was upstairs, was on the second floor above a legendary bar in Hong Kong at that time called the Neptune Bar. And you would go back like you were going to the restroom, the bathroom, and instead of making a right turn to the restroom, you'd make a left turn and go up this little set of stairs and it would take you up to the tattoo shop. They would have, they would have a kid sitting on the stairs and if the shore patrol came, he would give a little whistle and, and the tattooers would know that the shore patrol was, was in the bar and they were coming up. And so they would hide all the sailors in the closets. So when the shore patrol stuck their head in the door to look around, there was nobody. The tattooers were just sitting in the chair doing nothing, you know. And then the shore patrol would leave. The, the kid on the stairs would give a little whistle. Everybody would come out of the closet with their bleeding arms. <laughs> and get your tattoo finished. <laughs> That's brilliant. They didn't want the sailors to get caught. 
Yeah, of course. Because then the shop gets a bad reputation of not taking care of the sailors. So yeah, they lose a lot of money. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was a loss of money. So it was important for them to <clears throat> have those safety measures built in. Man, that's a whole another experience. It's so funny. And uh, and where did you go from there? Well, from there, um, I got out of the Navy in '69 and um, got an apartment in San Francisco. I got discharged uh, at Treasure Island, which is a an island um, in the San Francisco Bay, which was actually built, they call it Treasure Island. Um, and it was, it was a completely flat island and it was built from all of the rubble from the 06, 1906 earthquake in San Francisco on fire. They took all the rubble and dumped it into the bay and made an island there. And um, then that became a military base. And so I was actually discharged from that that base, Treasure Island. And so I got an apartment in San Francisco and stayed there till my hair got long. And then I came back to North Carolina, you know, thinking I was going to get a work and stuff like this, but nobody would hire me because of my long hair. All right. <laughs> it was one of those. <laughs> Different times. Different times. Yeah. And then, but you, you kept, you know, obviously you kept your passion for tattooing. Yeah, I kept getting tattooed. Yeah, I was. Yeah. I would get tattooed um, here in North Carolina. There was a fellow named Tattoo Joe who's actually still alive um, here in Winston that was tattooing. Um, I didn't get many tattoos at, initially when I came back to North Carolina because most of the tattooing in North Carolina is on the coast where all the military bases are. So I was more inland, so I wasn't very close to the bases. So there was a little lag there, but I continued to get tattooed and um, collect, you know, get as much work as I can from as many artists as possible. Yeah. Was there somebody that you particularly were, you know, excited to get tattooed by at that time that you remember? Well, you know, I was here and um, back at, I was back in North Carolina. I had gone back and forth between California a couple of times and, um, I had friends that were roadies with the Allman Brothers and they had been on the road and they had gone into Chicago and they had gotten tattooed by Cliff Raven. So they brought those tattoos back to North Carolina and I got to see those and marveled at them. So immediately I started saving my money and making plans about going to Chicago to see Cliff. So he was one of the first really what I would call great tattooers that I was able to be around. Um, and of course, Hardy, you know, once I was in San Francisco and started seriously thinking about getting more tattoos with some money in my pocket, um, I ended up getting tattooed from Hardy and that was, uh, that was a game changer. Yeah, how old were you kinda at the time? Well, by then, let's see, I got out of the Navy in 69 and I was, uh, I guess, 21. So I was in my 20s, um, 20s yeah. mid to late 20s. And then you met Ed Hardy and everything changed. Yeah, everything changed then, yeah. I was actually building bicycles. I had decided I wanted to use my GI Bill. So I went to a welding school here in actually Winston-Salem where I'm at or where my shop is now and studied welding. And then there was a frame builder, bicycle frame builder in Oakland, California named Albert Eisentrout that um, I had seen his bicycle frames and really admired them. So I went out there and got a job with him. I got an apprenticeship with him, which was cool 
because uh, the government paid him to teach me. The government paid me through the GI Bill to take the apprenticeship, and he paid me a salary as well. Oh, brilliant. So, Everybody's winning. So everybody's winning. And so <clears throat> all that money that the government gave me to do the apprenticeship, which was part of my GI Bill, I gave to Hardy <laughs> and got sleeves. Nice, nice. So, <laughs> so all that money got ch- channeled back to Ed Hardy. And uh, so I got a set of sleeves from him, uh, which was uh, incredible. I obviously still have them and <laughs> I've yeah. cherished them for years. Of course. And what, what was your first impression when you met him? Well, you know, I remember the shop really well. It was uh, located on Van Ness Avenue, which is a big major street in San Francisco. It runs from downtown all the way to the San Francisco Bay. The shop was uh, in a nondescript building. There was no signage. You know, I just had the address. And so you walk in and actually when you first walked in, there was a mattress company <laughs> there. Yeah. And then you walked all the way down the hall and then his little studio was at the end of this hallway in the oh, kind of the back of the back of the building. It could not be more obscure. So, you know, as soon as you walked into the shop, the walls were covered with all these Japanese inspired sleeves and back pieces and all this. And you just kind of, You know, I'd been in a few tattoo shops before then, so I knew that this was something different. So I made the decision then to get, I had a, probably 15 tattoos probably on my arms. So I made the decision then to get those all tied together into a set of sleeves. So that was the first work I got from him. So, And then from that, I guess you kept, you know, a relationship and... Yeah, I kept working. I was building bicycles. And so I would come come um, every couple of weeks and get work done. And so we stayed in touch. And, you know, then the popularity of tattooing began to grow. And so then there were art shows and there was all kinds of exhibits in San Francisco. So if he was involved, you know, I would help him with those, you know, logistically and, and schlepping stuff around and all this kind of stuff. So we, we stayed in touch through the years and it was a great experience. And I guess in the 70s, San Francisco, which always been even now, you know, but I guess in the 70s was such a booming place, right? With so much energy and creativity. And it was, you know, the those 60s and 70s for musically, it was amazing. Um, and, um, you know, it was kind of before the big tech boom, which kind of ch- began to change the city. So the city was. Um, it had a lot of the old school flavor that San Francisco was famous for. Sadly, a lot of that's gone now, but it was an amazing city. It was an incredible walking city to get out and just walk in. Yeah. And then you started tattooing. Yeah. You know, um, Ed had, we had done the uh, Reno convention and uh, we had met Good Time Charlie and Jack Rudy there. And they had come with a couple of their customers and created quite a sensation, actually, with their single fine line tattooing. So Ed was uh, really taken with this. And so he decided he wanted to open a shop in the Mission District, which is the Hispanic section of town, and uh, explore that, that work, that style. So he needed someone to help him build that shop and run that shop. So he offered to teach me to tattoo. 
So I got my foot in the door of the business there. Uh, sadly, that shop burnt. There was a crazy arsonist that was trying to kill his girlfriend that lived upstairs in the, the old Fleabag Hotel. So he set the place on fire. Jesus. So the shop burnt, and that was the end of that shop, sadly. And then th through Ed, I got a job with uh, Paul Jeffries in Calgary. So I relocated to Calgary, Alberta, Canada, which is <clears throat> pretty drastic for a North Carolina boy, that weather yeah. or something. Um, so I worked there for a while. And then uh, my friend Dean Dennis, who had gotten tattooed by him in Alameda, he actually started his tattoo career with Lyle. I think he was, he was related by marriage to Lyle somehow and got an apprenticeship with Lyle. And so by then he was tattooing in Alameda just across the street from Pinky. He offered me a job. And so I came back um, to California and Dean had rented a space in San Francisco on Broadway, which is the big nightclub kind of tits and ass section of San Francisco. So he had rented a space there. So I helped him build that out and uh, worked there for quite a while. Then he got religion and quit tattooing. So I ended up working with Henry Goldfield, who which had been on Broadway there for quite a few years. I was living in Berkeley across the Bay at the time and would commute back and forth with my bicycle. Um, I wanted to have my own shop. So I found a small shop in shop space in Berkeley and opened there. Must've been um, about 70, yeah, 70. Yeah, it was earlier than 79. It was in the late 70s. Uh, I don't remember the exact year, but I had a little shop there, you know, 200 square feet. Um, and so I worked there for 25 years. It was a great little location. Um, I had, there was the first place I actually had the archive, you know, where the public could come and visit it. So uh, that was a good location. The archive grew there. The mail order business grew. So I started some newsletters, history newsletters. I was writing for other newsletters there. So that worked out well. And I knew, you know, being a country boy from North Carolina, I knew eventually I was going to burn out on the big city. Uh, mm. And so in 2000 or so like that, I started thinking about making the move back to North Carolina, getting out of the big city. So I would, was coming back to North Carolina and I didn't know exactly where I wanted to put the shop. I knew it had to be in a city of some size. I wanted it to be around some kind of university, some kind of school, um, just for the, the culture that that brings to a city. So I, I would come back and visit, just go to all the major cities in the state and just spend some time. Get a, get a hotel. I had my bicycle, so I just explore the cities on my bicycle. After doing that for about four or five years, um, Winston-Salem just went out. You know, it was a nice downtown. It had a, you know, it was a, an established city, had four big schools around it. So I figured there'd be some business that could be made there. So we settled here. I came, uh, Harriet, my, Harriet Cohen, my wife, we came out here and settled and we've been here since 07. So, wow. It's crazy how you cross paths with like pillars of this industry. You know, like you keep mentioning these names and even, you know, just one would make 
you know, a career of a, of a tattooer worth. I mean, like, oh, wow. And you met all of them. <laughs> yeah, I, w- I was very fortunate in San Francisco to, um, to, to be looking for tattoos, to get tattoos. So consequently, you end up spending time around these people. And so you build friendships, you know, in that time as a customer. And then that carries over even later in life. So, yeah, I was, I was very fortunate. Yeah. And then you created a tattoo archive. Yeah, the tattoo archive was started in Berkeley in really uh, 79. It was started. It really came out of the, my interest in history. Um, there were a lot of the clubs were still it was kind of at the end of the era of tattoo clubs, the 60s and 70s. The clubs were kind of fading. Um, but there were still some and they were doing newsletters and I would join these clubs and I'd get their newsletters and try to stay in touch with what was happening. And, you know, I noticed that there really was no history or very little history in their newsletters. So I started uh, volunteering to, to write history columns, you know, history stuff for the newsletters. So they were of course, anxious for content, you know, how that is. If you're doing a newsletter, it's all about the content that you can get. So um, that grew and grew uh, and there was, became to be more interest in, in the history. So then I actually started um, the archive file, which was my own newsletter out of the archive. So I did that for quite a few years. And then the kind of the interest of that kind of fell off. So I just, I kind of kept writing and now I'm just doing booklets and publications and stuff still about history. It's, yeah. it's a big part of what I do. How would you go with, you know, researching and stuff? Like, how would you? Well, you, you at that time, pre-computer, um, it was spending long hours at the library, <laughs> to be truthful. I would spend 15 hours a week in the library pouring over their catalogs and trying to find information. And then once the computer came, <laughs> you actually had all those libraries on your desktop. It made life considerably simpler. It's crazy. I interview a, a guy called Terry Manton from Scotland. Yes, the name. I know the name. Scottish Tattoo History on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's crazy because he used to tattoo, he used to have a shop and stuff. And then he, he stopped, I think, in the 80s. And he got really into this sort of, it's almost like investigative journalism or something. Mm. Yeah, because he explains how he, you know, search for the life of specific characters. And, and he was saying how he, a lot of things he finds in uh, old newspaper cutouts. Mm-hmm. And then you can see the movements of the people. And then it's almost like detective work. Yeah, it, it, it very much is. I mean, now it's certainly much easier. I mean, there's so much interest in tattoo history. And there's so much tattoo history on the internet that it's, it's amazing now. But it was a slow, laborious process that you would dig and dig and find one little gem that would be a, a really relevant fact. And so you would just start assembling those little gems. And then after a few decades of doing that, you, you have something that's a little more substantial. Um, early on, one of my major sources was uh, city directories. And city directories in the U.S., they're almost like a phone book, but they're, they're a listing by the city of all the people that paid utilities in the city. And it was alphabetized like the phone book. So these city directories, some of them in big cities like Chicago and stuff, go back to the mid-1800s. 
And these would be published you know, each year and the main libraries in these cities would have these city directories on their shelves. So you could literally go into the main library and uh, go back into the stacks and start working these city directories. And being that they were alphabetized, which helped a lot, um, you could go straight to the T and find all the tattoo shops that paid utilities in that year. So you could work your way through this. And so then that begins to give you addresses. Once you get addresses, then you can start going to the historical societies in the cities. And in, big, in many big cities, they would hire photographers, especially in a time of redevelopment when they were getting ready to tear down sections of town to modernize them. They would hire photographers to go in and photograph those sections of town, sometimes block by block by block. So they would photograph all those shop fronts and what they looked like. So once you had the address, then you could begin to pinpoint those shops inside the blocks and often find photographs of the shop fronts. So there was, you know, there's just a process that you, you learn when you're doing that kind of research of, of where you're going to actually be able to find some of those nuggets. And, you know, it becomes frustrating when you dig and dig and dig and dig and not find anything. <laughs> so you want to go to a source where you can at least begin to get some reward for your work. So yeah. those were two places that I found that were excellent. Can only imagine the satisfaction when you spend so much time and weeks and days and months. And then one day it pops up a name, a thing, and it's, it's the start of the chain. And, and I can only imagine how it must yeah. feel. Huh? It's, it's still very exciting. I mean, I have a subscription to newspapers.com and um, every day I spend at least an hour a day on that, working that. And it's still exciting. It's still great to find that. So that's, uh, that never ceases. Yeah. And uh, what would you say is the biggest value in a tattooer, for example, especially the younger ones, you know, in learning about the history of their craft? For me, I mean, my whole, the, the tattoo work I've started uh, with three by five index cards in a shoebox. <laughs> and I actually took Albert Perry's book. I don't know if you know that book. It's a 1933 book that was written mostly about uh, East Coast tattooers, but um, it had a fabulous index. I mean, it was one of the few tattoo history books that you could find like in the 60s that actually had an index. So I actually took that index and created a file of those people in those places. And to me, the people and the places are the things that are the, the most important, I think, because they open the door to all the other information. Um, it's important that we understand the shoulders that we're standing on. We have a great view of tattooing where we're standing, and it's because of those shoulders we're standing on. Absolutely, yeah, appreciation. If you know where you come from, you can know better where you're going. And you can That's understand better the... Yes, yes, exactly. You cannot move forward in any industry without understanding the history of it. Yeah. Do you have any party, like your personal favorite in terms of, you know, a certain tattooers or a certain time period or a certain area for any reason? Uh, my favorite period is probably about the, the 
1850s to about the 1950s, that 100-year period, tattooing became electrified. Um, and there was those world wars that increased the number of tattooers and the amount of tattooing being done and the design development. So for me, that's, uh, that's kind of the golden era for, for me. Uh, and I, I enjoy doing, most of my, my research actually is in that period. So now you're running still the Tattoo Archive. Mm -hmm. And then I see that, you know, with uh, Ed Hardy and Hank and uh, Alan Governor in 1993, you uh, created Paul Rogers Tattoo Research Center. How, how did that happen? And, and what's the main reason for that? Well, I had met Paul through Ed in the 70s. I would go visit him in Florida. I was on the East Coast a lot, so it was easy to go to Florida and visit. Um, and I got to spend time around him and um, admired him. You know, he was, he was like me. He was a real country boy. Had those country boy ways about him. Was very generous. Was very skilled uh, at his machine building. His machines were not very polished, but boy, they were effective. And when he died, um, he left his collection to the Tattoo Archive. His, he knew that his family wasn't really interested in it and uh, felt that it would be better cared for uh, at the Tattoo Archive. So we inherited that collection. And so I went to Florida and to his trailer there and kind of um, assembled that collection and had it shipped back to, at that time, California. And we decided that that collection needed to be safeguarded, um, that we felt that it was an important one. And so we formed a nonprofit with Ed and Hanky and Alan. So that, that's been, you know, 30 years or something now. Uh, so, um, I've been doing a lot of publications about the, the accessions of stuff into that nonprofit. So we kind of built that nonprofit as a way to uh, safeguard Paul's collection, which was pretty, pretty massive. It, he did not have a lot of any single item, machines, photographs, uh, business cards, but he had a little bit of everything. And so it, uh, it's a pretty broad collection. And through the years, people have made a lot of contributions to that. And so that's been, uh, been a, um, a nice enterprise to work on. Do you have a favorite of those pieces that you always see and you're like, oh, yes. Well, you know, um, Paul, Paul did not have much of his flash that from his show days. You know, he spent uh, a decade working in circuses and carnivals. So he didn't have much of his flash, but I, I do like the, the little bit of his flash that did survive, um, I really like. And he corresponded with a lot of tattooers uh, from his era. So those letters are always fascinating too. Yeah, very, very personal and very rich of yeah. feeling. And um, where would you like the tattoo archive to go in the future? I think we're just gonna kind of keep on keeping on. Um, I don't know. You know, obviously, it's important for us to keep these tattooers of the past names alive. I think that's, if there's any goal, that is kind of the goal to keep those people's names alive and their legacy and their art and their 
humor and their all that kind of to keep that alive so that the, the younger generation can appreciate that and um, the, the older generation as well. You know, they can find some, some memories tied up into that. So I think that's kind of the goal is just to kind of continue to do that, um, continuing the writing and the research. You know, in, in 2019, we uh, formed the Tattoo Historical Society. I don't know if you're familiar with that or heard about that, but it's um, in 19, we had a gathering here in Winston-Salem. It was a one-day event. We had lectures and seminars. Um, there was no tattooing. It was all history-oriented. People could buy, bring in their stuff to buy, sell, and trade. Um, so that was uh, a way to kind of continue to promote uh, the history. And a lot of the, the people, the publishers, the people that are doing the books now and the museums, a lot of those people came. So it's, it's, uh, it's refreshing to see other people opening museums um, and continuing to, uh, to carry on that tradition of the history. Yeah, absolutely. And then obviously now you have a special situation going on in the world, but is this something that you would like to keep going as a sort of an annual event or every now and then and stuff, or you, as well, like as a parallel thing, uh, I don't know, with other forms uh, online or? Yeah, we definitely want to keep the historical society going. Uh, obviously, we lost 2020 uh, because of the COVID we are beginning to make plans for 2021. We've got our fingers crossed and trying to stay optimistic that that can actually happen. Um, I would like for that to be an annual event. Um, I think it's important. I, I like uh, building some camaraderie with all those other museums um, and those collections, which now in the US, there's uh, probably at least 20 and even more around the world. So there's a tremendous interest in the history of tattooing now. And I'd like to see that continue. I think yeah. it's important. Is, is there any way that if some people listening to this would like to help, you know, can contribute with this or the tattoo archive? That... Well, obviously supporting, you know, if they have a museum um, in their area, supporting them um, through uh, just labor, or if you have stuff that you'd like to donate to them, or if you have an interest yourself in writing tattoo history, if you if you find that that that's something that you like, that you're drawn to, um, there's always more openings. There's lots of history to be written, lots of stories to be told that haven't been so. Yeah. And how can people get find you, like write you? Uh, well, we're online at tattooarchive.com. Um, we're here in Winston-Salem. You can find our address at the, on the website. We have uh, quite a bit of visibility online. I think it'd probably be the best way to make contact with us. I get this question often asked uh, because with this podcast and other things, I try to promote, you know, especially younger tattooers to learn about the history because I think it could be very beneficial for, you know, developing a certain kind of understanding. And uh, how would you advise a younger tattooer that would like to learn about history, obviously through your website, which is an incredible, you know, reference material, how would you advise them to go about? Well, the, certainly the internet would be a start, would be a, a major starting point. Um, there's lots of books being written on tattoo history. I mean, on specific people and certain stuff like that. Um, 
I would say just gather that stuff up and and start digging into it. Um, yeah. It's there's, I mean, when I started getting tattooed and found an interest in history, there was probably four or five books that you could find at the library, maybe if they hadn't been stolen. So now, now there's four or five books a week that are being published. So you can see that there, there is a wealth of it out there. Um, and I, I guess you, you kind of begin to figure out that the initial thing is you, the tattoo history is so broad that you need to figure out what aspect and what <laughs> century you'd like to study. Um, you know what I'm saying? It's like there's yeah, what country, what tradition? What, yeah. yeah, I mean, and to be truthful, I I encourage a lot of people start where you're at, wherever you live, start there, and start exploring who was tattooing in your town or in your area, and then that will build and build and build, and then you will go further and further afield from where you're at, but. You can start right at home. You don't even have to go that far. You can start at your local library and, and go start with those city directories. Find out who was tattooing in your town. And, and then that knowledge will just, it will expand and expand and expand into yeah, it. It's, like it's almost like contagious then as well, you know, when you talk yeah, about it. And yeah, once you start making, once you start finding stuff, then uh, you become hungrier to find more so it just kind of builds and builds and builds and then one last thing because you you know you traveled the world you met so many people that has so many so much influence you know in this world if you might think of uh, what would be the the most valuable advice you received over the years um persistence persistence pays off in the long run Stick with it. I think that would be my advice. You know, it's it's easy to get discouraged. It's a it's a weird business. It's kind of a feast or famine business, and you it's easy to get discouraged and uh, lose faith. Um, but I think uh, persistence pays off. Awesome, Chuck. Thank you very much. This has been amazing. It's a privilege, you know, to get to talk to you. Yes, even, thank even you if very it's much for, for your labor with these uh, tattoo tales. I've been enjoying them. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, try to always, you know, select the guests carefully because, you know, people like yourself that has so much, you know, such a life that needs to be, I think, in my opinion, recorded and amplified, you know, because people, and people, when they write me, they really, really find this beneficial, you know, so, yeah, try my best. Yeah, good work. Keep it up. Thank you. Persistence pays off. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much. Awesome. Bye.